According to a recent Consumer Reports survey, three out of four Americans believe that broadband should be treated the same as sewer, water, and roads. That means the internet would be publicly owned and operated rather than caught up in a privatized monopoly. As this statistic illustrates, community members want to see change, but are often unaware of how vital their input and support is in actually fixing our internet. Today's episode is with Bruce Patterson, Director of Solution Services at EntryPoint, a company that envisions a world where broadband infrastructure is more reliable, faster, safer, and increasingly consumer-focused. Bruce is recognized as a thought leader behind the Ammon model, which includes automated open access and a business model that mitigates risk for cities and creates local network ownership, treating it as a true public utility. For 15 years, Bruce was the technology director at the city of Ammon and was responsible for network planning, design, construction, and operations. Bruce is widely recognized as the key influence in the city for the project's success. We are so excited to dig into this topic a little bit more and can't wait for Bruce to provide additional clarity on what exactly it means to try to tackle the digital divide. Hi, Bruce. Thanks so much for joining us on Transcending Conversations today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me. We are so excited. We actually started speaking with you first, I think, when we started to embark on this journey of launching our podcast. And so it feels like things are coming full circle to be able to interview you today. Well, I'm glad you haven't given up on me yet. (laughs) No, no, not at all. I'd love for you to kick us off by introducing yourself and providing some background on how you got involved in the digital divide space. I started this journey with the city of Ammon. I was really just an IT person. I was a one-man IT shop for a pretty small town in Idaho. And the elected officials, the city council that I worked for, had an interest in trying to build a municipal network, primarily because there were other cities around them that had fiber optic systems that were municipally owned that they were using to drive economic development. So that was the original vision, and they tasked me with trying to do that. So I I spent 17 years at the city of Ammon, and thankfully to the, the people that were there and assisted me, we were able to do some things that I think were meaningful and achieve the outcomes that we were trying to do in building a municipally owned system. By the time we were done, one of the things we accomplished was to get to every neighborhood and do it at a price point that was pretty attractive. So that led me to uh, where I am today. I I work for EntryPoint Networks, and we work with a multitude of cities and counties, public entities across the country to try and design similar systems to address the issues within their communities at at a rate that everybody can afford and get everybody connected. When you first started with the city of Ammon, what were people paying, you know, on average for the internet services versus maybe once you were able to implement this infrastructure? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you actually go all the way back to when I started, it was actually a different economy. <laughs> so yeah. what people paid for services at that point in time probably wasn't enormously different because you were doing things like DSL or dial-up or cable was just barely starting. So when you start talking about cable internet, which was one of the more expensive options. So I think a lot of people were really probably paying in that neighborhood of, uh, you know, $20 to $50. Okay. 
And so that's what they were doing. But the connectivity was significantly different than what it is today as we start to look at what people need to be able to do the things they do. We've seen a lot of evolution in the space in terms of how people use the internet, the bandwidth they need. And it is interesting because I think that we've seen a lot of capacity improvement, but I don't really think we've seen price drop other than in the sense that we get more for what we pay for than we used to get. It's unfortunate that I do think that there are some that really struggle with even being able to have enough in their monthly budget to afford a base that makes them able to participate in the digital world today. I wonder if you could dive a little bit deeper into kind of the history of broadband internet and maybe explain how that service and internet in general has influenced the digital divide. I think it's important for anybody that really wants to participate in understanding how we got here and how we're going to solve this problem that they're aware of the history. And I think it, the 30,000-foot view is, is important. And that 30,000-foot view is that we had a phone company that was a regulated system that managed to successfully get phone service to virtually every address in the company at an affordable rate. And we did that through uh, building a single infrastructure, a single phone system. We didn't build competing ones and create a marketplace. We built a single system. And of course, that got somewhat unbundled, as it were, when we allowed other operators provide long-distance service on the same traditional local phone system. And we saw that in the 90s in the Telecommunications Act. But the point being that the infrastructure got built through a regulated system. The cable system, on the other hand, was completely private. It was built completely through an unregulated private competition model where infrastructure got built to each address. The challenge today is those two systems both offer the competing service that the consumer is most interested in, and that's the internet. So we've got a phone wire and a cable wire that used to never compete that now compete. And for that reason, it's going to require more funding from the consumer to support both of those systems. And we can actually introduce to that same conversation today wireless. I, I give you an example of that. Anybody that's in this space knows what the Affordable Connectivity Program is. That's the program run by the FCC currently to provide a subsidy to get service if you can't afford it. It's a $30 a month subsidy. And the vast majority of people that take that subsidy, they actually apply it to their cell phone bill. Interesting. So it's an interesting dynamic that really helps us to see that we've got a lot of infrastructures that are all competing for the same dollars, and most all of them have been freed from any regulation or oversight on, on the part of the government or the community. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's great to have a cellular device that, you know, that subsidy can go towards. I think that's a huge benefit to the consumer, but there's still so many things that you can't do on a cellular device, right? It's so difficult to submit a college application if you only have internet access on your mobile device or apply for jobs and build a resume and, and things like that. Absolutely. And that's been proven over and over again. One of the most uh, beneficial surveys or studies, I should say, that's been done was actually done by Quello Center at the Michigan State University. And they actually looked at three different kinds of students. They looked at students that had a wireline broadband connection at home and had access to a PC or laptop. And then they looked at students that only had a mobile connection connected to a cell phone or a tablet 
And then they looked at students that had no broadband at home. And they compared the outcomes in this, sur- in this study. They looked at who did the best at school, who was the most likely to go on to higher education, and so forth. And what they found was those that had a wireline broadband connection, or let's call it terrestrial, which could be fixed wireless, but we're talking about substantial bandwidth hardwired into the home. Those students did very well, and they were much more likely to go on to higher education. They scored higher, and they were able to complete their classroom assignments. Those that actually only had a mobile connection actually scored exactly the same as those that had no broadband at their home. Really? So that's a pretty meaningful survey that I think helps us to understand. That was one of the first that you would find out there. There are a lot of organizations focused on the space right now, like Education Superhighway as an organization. They're doing fabulous work that actually analyzes this and is helping us to understand that it's not just having a connection. It's actually a robust, reliable connection that's necessary for people to be able to do the things they need to do in this day and age, like classwork or work from home. What would you say are some some benefits of privatized internet? And then we can maybe dig into some of the drawbacks as well. The internet was commercialized. And when you start talking about being privatized, that's the point at which really there was a nice avenue for private investment to expand internet service to the home. So prior to the 90s, it was predominantly a science experiment. So most all of the infrastructure, government-owned, government-operated, universities, Department of Defense, a number of other things that actually use those long-haul connections. In the 90s, it was determined that there would be some benefit to opening that up. And there was interest on the part of the commercial community to commercialize it. In other words, create services and applications that could be run across that infrastructure. And it seemed fairly simplistic because the government entities that owned that infrastructure and the higher education facilities that owned it predominantly outsourced to third-party commercial entities the the maintenance and operation. They didn't actually do that in-house. You know, you didn't send the the university professor to go fix something that was uh, halfway across the state. So they outsourced all that already. So in order to get that investment and expand the use of the internet in the 90s, they commercialized it, which means they really just gave away the infrastructure to some commercial entities that started to take that over. And we did see good investment. I mean, we saw the web browser. That was a key aspect. We started to see where people started to actually use it because you could do web pages. and, And so that those protocols and things that led to that really helped. And now we see streaming services. We see other things that make use of the internet that are applications that operate. So I don't think we would have seen that if we hadn't opened it up to private investment. I think those are really strong improvements. And I think a lot of the investment on the part of the private operators even got us 80% of the way, meaning that we can look at the addresses that are connected and we can recognize private investment got us there Now, we have a gap, and that gap is those that don't have it. We can say whatever it is for the various areas, but it's about 20%. That's what's left is getting access to that remaining 20%. That's one aspect. The second aspect is, is that leaving this purely to the commercial paradigm is not going to close the affordability gap either. And we can see that in programs like the ACP programs where Policy officials, public entities have an interest in trying to make sure everybody has access. And so they're coming up with programs that are subsidies or other ways to inject public money into the problem to try and solve it and close those gaps. 
Yeah. What do you think that some of the barriers are that people are facing now in trying to access privatized internet? Other than, you know, affordability, what are maybe some of the other barriers? Sure. I think affordability, I mean, I appreciate you touched on that. I think that's important because we have to recognize that's number one. Any survey you take where you ask people, why don't you have it? The number one answer is, I can't afford it. Now, following that, of course, are other answers like, I don't have a device or I don't know how to use it. And I do think there's, for those of us that fall into society and really feel like we're not technical savvy, you know, there's some discomfort that goes with it where we're worried about security. We feel like we'd like to use it, but we feel like we're at risk and we feel like we're vulnerable. And that's an uncomfortable situation when you start talking about a new experience in technology. So, yeah. I think those are barriers that people face. I think we could do a better job as society in uh, preparing people for that. You know, we've had some good conversations around when does digital literacy, when does digital skills training start? And there's a lot of focus about all of these programs that start to happen in high school or better yet in higher ed where we really start to teach people. But the truth is we need to push those things down. It really starts to happen at a much younger age. And as we think about connectivity, we emphasize in a college or a university needs a really robust connection, but why would an elementary school need it? Yeah. Well, we could make a counter argument that those elementary schools actually need the strongest connection because that's where it's going to start. I know for me, as I deal with new things that I'm uncomfortable with because I'm getting up there in years, it's <laughs> it's my kids that convince me to try it and show me how to do it. So I think we have to start earlier. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, on the flip side of that, folks who are, you know, maybe a little bit older, who are more hesitant to adopt these seniors who really could benefit from from internet in terms of being to connect with their loved ones or continue education, entertainment, whatever that might look like. How do we continue to pull them in outside of the structure of early elementary education or things like that? I agree 100%. And as you talk about those that are older, there's some statistics out there that resonate with me that go through my head. The city of Detroit had by a third-party research organization a a statistically relevant survey done within the entire city of Detroit. And they asked people what the number one reason they accessed the internet was. We live in the golden age of streaming, so I don't think anybody will be surprised to hear it was entertainment was number one. (laughs) Number two was, I thought, enlightening. Because the number two reason people use the internet in Detroit was to do their online banking. And I think that's significant because that helps us to see that people rely on that to actually manage their finances. And I started to think about that. I thought about how banks were on every street corner and we've seen them go away and we've seen them move online because they're not needed anymore. There's just not that demand. And we used to worry about them being ADA compliant, that you could get in with a wheelchair, whatever your situation was, you had access. I don't think we're applying those same due diligence, that same due diligence to to the online experience. And I think we need to figure out ways to make that happen, particularly for the elderly, because I think they feel very insecure when they're uncertain about their finances and their transactions. They don't want that exposed. 
we need to focus on ways to help them understand how they can feel secure and how they can do those things online. It's an important aspect that we need to cover. Absolutely. Especially considering that, okay, that's the number two use for internet. But during the pandemic, when the banks were closed, now if you aren't connected to the internet, you were almost completely cut off from banking. You were unable to check your balances or pay your bills online because you don't know how much is in your account. And so I can't imagine what that would be, what that would be like. And I wonder if you'll continue on with that and maybe share your thoughts on how the COVID-19 pandemic influenced the use of broadband internet. Well, I think the things that start to become very clear is that uh, the use of the internet shifted. A lot of our children had to attend school from home. A lot of us started to work from home. And even as the pandemic, we've started to move from dealing with the pandemic to living with a disease. So we're moving into that living with the disease portion of it. A lot of us won't go back. And in fact, some of the students won't go back and they've made decisions that this works for them. And companies have made decisions that this actually works better for them. So it's put pressure on the systems and the economics that are associated with this and really tried to give us an incentive, I think, as a nation to figure out how to make this work for us because it's accelerated a transition that I think we always saw and many of us honestly wanted. And it's really given some momentum to it. So we've seen that transition, but the more powerful transition I think we've actually seen revolves around public opinion, because I think prior to the pandemic, so many of us said that'll never work. Yeah. But I think a lot more of us now say it will work and it is working and it does work. And what it's really led to is a shift in perception about the role the internet is going to play in our lives going forward. I think prior to the pandemic, we were fairly divided on how many thought the internet was essential to us, that we needed to have it. It was a must-have. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think in general, any survey you look at is going to demonstrate people know that it's essential. And there's a shift from this feeling that just leaving it to private competition and market rates is going to get us where we need to go because many people are starting to say, wait a minute, as we make these investments, as we build these systems, to deliver these services, we should be thinking about these things as we think about our roads and our sewer and our water. And so it's not surprising that regardless of your political affiliation, most people would agree that we need to start treating this infrastructure as a utility. And especially if we're going to put public money into a solution, it needs to be treated as a utility. Absolutely. Part of our mission here at Transcending Conversations is to amplify the voices of other individuals, communities, and organizations working to close the digital divide. One such organization is the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, or NDIA. The NDIA works to advance digital equity by supporting community programs and equipping policymakers to act. They combine grassroots community engagement with technical knowledge, research, and coalition building to advocate on behalf of people working in their communities for digital equity. Some of the services they provide include practitioner support, advocacy for local, state, and federal policies increasing digital inclusion, education for potential partners, media outlets, and policymakers, as well as data-driven research focused on providing community solutions. 
you are doing digital inclusion work or want to learn more, the NDIA is one of the best places to start. To learn more, you can visit their website at digitalinclusion.org. That's digitalinclusion.org. You'll also be able to find the link in our show notes from today's episode. From all of us here at Transcending Conversations, we want to thank NDIA for all of the work that they have done and continue to do to tackle the disparities that exist in the digital inclusion space. Thank you for your dedication, creativity, problem solving, and network building. Let's get back to the show. What are, what are some of the possible solutions to the privatized broadband epidemic? It's another broad well, that's question. A, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say is I'm going to say, boy, you set me up on that. That's a really broad question. <laughs> the biggest challenge is, is that these private companies and private organizations, whether, they're, whether they own infrastructure or they're just doing services, they've all made some investments. And I think we're all reluctant to turn around and, and do things that really ruin their ability to recapture that investment. So we don't really want to see corporations that have spent money to provide a service that have gone out and done things be left holding the bag and not be able to recover that cost from that investment. So in answer to your question, I guess I think in my head that it does come back to that leadership question is what's the transition? How do we define the period? Because we still have companies investing in monopolistic infrastructure. And in fact, today yeah. with the public money that's going to go out, it actually has turned into a race. We've got areas where public money is completely logical to bridge the gap, to get to that 20% that are hard to get to. And what the injection of that public money in to the system to, to, to be a solution has done is it's actually caused some of the private investors to rapidly roll out and say, we're going to connect this many and we're going to connect this many. And so they're going into these areas with the idea that they're going to try and connect them with their private investment as a monopoly and try and create a disincentive for that public solution. I heard an interesting statistic at a meeting I was in here just a few days ago. I was talking with a, a financial institution that invests in fiber optic infrastructure. Okay. And they said that their analysis shows that in some of the areas where they're going to build private infrastructure, their return on investment places the value of that fiber at 19 times what it actually costs to build it. Wow. The only way you achieve that is by building a monopoly where you can charge whatever price you want to the end users and protecting it from being overbuilt by another solution. And I think that's the behavior that we've got to figure out how to curb. We have to figure out how to curb that type of behavior. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's drastic. Yeah. Can you paint a little bit of a picture of what you're talking about when you say infrastructure? What does that look like? I think the simplest and easiest way to explain that so that anybody could understand is to make a comparison between package delivery and the roads. So a service that you might want is a package delivery, and you'll go to the U.S. Postal Service, you'll go to UPS, you'll go to FedEx, and you'll request a service for them to pick up an item, bring it across the states or the country, and drop it at your doorstep. So in a lot of ways, broadband is just like that. You're delivering packets or packages across an infrastructure. 
And so to kind of make that comparison complete in people's minds, we're talking about the roads. And that might be a wireline road. It could be a piece of copper. It could be a piece of fiber. And actually, it could be wireless in some instances where it actually is just pushed through the air. But that infrastructure is that investment in those physical assets that make that connectivity possible. And those things have really been separated from the services in this day and age. And the internet actually played a very large role in that. And so part of the solution that we need to think about is that unbundling, the separation of the services from the infrastructure. And that's really, really logical because if you think about it, UPS and FedEx for their services and the investments they make to run that package delivery, which would involve just hiring people and maybe buying some vehicles, that investment cycle is completely different than the cycle we use to build the roads. And the problem is the broadband industry today actually ties those two together. So when you hire people and you buy vehicles, those are short-term investments. That vehicle at the use it gets is probably a three-year vehicle before you're going to recycle it. Mm -hmm. People come and go and they bring them in to, to run that. The roads, that's a 30-year investment. We don't use the same financing models to build that road as we use to hire people or buy vehicles. Those are completely separate. But if we were to bundle those two together and we asked FedEx and UPS to actually build the roads they drive on, the cost that we would pay is completely different because yeah. they would need to recover. They'd need to recover that infrastructure cost or the cost to build the roads in such a short time frame that the cost goes sky high. So the unbundling part of it makes complete sense because we can apply different financial models to the infrastructure, longer terms, lower interest rate, more public participation in those, and we can get the public side out of the services side and just leave that to private. Now, just like package delivery, we might have some role for some government service like the U.S. Postal Service. But there's always going to be a role for the private sector mm -hmm. because we're going to want it faster or we're going to want it a certain way. And that's where I think we can really start to separate infrastructure from services. And we'll see a whole nother evolution and innovation in business that will start to happen. Oh, that's so helpful. Such a helpful visualization. Have you seen any communities that are working to build that model and are maybe effectively implementing municipal broadband in some sense? I think there's a lot of them, and I think we have to tip our hats to those that came first and took all the arrows. Yeah. There's still a few arrows. There's still a few arrows. <laughs> but I would say that a lot of people stepped out of their comfort zone and at their own risk tried to deal with this problem for their communities. And with varying degrees of success, I would argue that any success is good success and things that we can learn from. Absolutely. If you're asking about specifics, I think there's uh, open access networks that are focused more in Utah that were stood up by Utopia. I think they're a good example of open access and how to influence the price to bring competition and choice on a single infrastructure. I think there are examples like in Chattanooga with their power board. EPB provides really low cost internet service. And when the pandemic hit, because they owned the wire, they were able to get philanthropic dollars and actually get free internet to anybody that needed it. Wow. And this is where it gets really interesting. The state of Tennessee actually had laws 
that said to EPB that they could not give the service away, that they had to charge what it cost them to do it. But where they were successful was they were able to get that price so low to deliver that service, they could get philanthropic dollars to cover that cost. Even though they were prepared to go and get it themselves and give it away for the benefit of their community, they didn't do that. They were able to find another solution. So I think we should all tip our hats to those that have been early to the party, that have focused on this is public money. How do we, if we're spending public money, keep the resulting asset in the public interest? And I I think fundamentally, any public entity that wants to engage in the space, that's the secret. There's a huge temptation on the part of any public entity with elected officials to just say, this is really hard. This is really complex. Yes, we want to solve the problem and we have a little bit of money we can put towards the problem. Could we just give it to somebody to go and use it and fix the problem for us? Yeah. The problem is you're just funding the same paradigm or the same model that created the problem. And the mistake we're making is applying funding to the exact same model is really just going to result in the same outcomes. And we've proven that over a decade. So I'm very happy to see some progress both at the federal and state levels in many, many states, progress along the lines of saying, if you as a public entity are going to take some of this money, you're going to apply it to the problem, please, please, please retain ownership of the asset and work to figure out how to make it available to your community and to the service providers that want to use it. We this season are wrapping up our episodes by asking our guests what listeners can do today to transcend the conversation, to make that real impactful change in their communities or larger nationwide, globally as a whole in terms of this issue. Maybe it doesn't have to be today. Maybe it's within the next week or two or even the next year. What would your recommendation be in terms of an action item? What I would ask is actually an extremely hard thing for most people to do. Inform yourself. Inform yourself. Don't rely on a soundbite from me or anybody else, but inform yourself. Understand what it means when we talk about broadband. Understand, at least at a base level, what it means for somebody to not have access to it. Understand what's likely going to happen over the next decade or two decades. And what's going to happen to people that don't have that connectivity and what that means and what the cost to all of us is if we can't get there. And I think it's also equally important to understand what it means to have a public interest in some of these investments and the role that that's going to play. I think too often we're very black and white and we feel like anything that has any oversight or public input is socialism or some other thing. And that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about the same way we build roads and we're talking about the same way we do water systems and wastewater systems. We're talking about how we did the power grid and we have to be honest with ourselves. These things and the prices we pay for them did not come out of the commercial market. Sure, there's a commercial market associated with each of them. But that public interest has to be represented, especially when we spend public money on it. And we are at that day and age. We're talking about $42 billion of public money being injected into the broadband problem. 
And I think that it's really, really critical for each of us to understand what that means and why we're doing it and to inform ourselves. The importance of each of us being informed is highlighted by the fact that 80% of us would say, we don't need this. I can afford what I'm paying for and what I'm paying for is enough. But the other 20% can't solve the problem without our input and our participation. And I think that's a key aspect of what many of us are missing is, do we really understand the consequences that many of these people are faced with? It's not as simple as just simply saying they need to go fix their own problem. They don't have the tools to do it. And we're going to have to help them figure that out. Absolutely. And it'll be easier if we're marching through it all together. It will. In terms of, of resources, if somebody wanted to start informing themselves today and, and working towards education on this topic, is there any place you would recommend them starting? I think the Benton Institute online has a lot of resources they could look at. I think that most of that is consumable by the general public. It does deal with some telecom law and some deeper subjects, but I think that's good. I also think Pew Research, P-E-W, Pew Research, has a lot of really good statistically relevant data. And I think they present it in a way that's very logical and helps people to understand what part of the problem is, how much of the problem is understood, and what effort is being done to help people understand better. Consumer Reports, additionally, has a division dedicated to helping people understand broadband access. And I think that it's also another nice consumer resource in helping people to see and understand what is people's experience? How many are being left behind? What is being done? And how do people generally feel about it? Those are really neutral resources that they could look to. Another resource I like is Education Superhighway. It's an organization, so you can actually go there, educationsuperhighway.org. They're doing some fabulous work in looking at broadband, how it relates to education, and I think they're very progressive in trying to look at what are the solutions we need and how are we going to walk through this process to make sure nobody's left behind. So those are resources that I think are neutral. And then there are others that I think are much more detailed and actually have an abundance of information about public infrastructure and public investment like muninetworks.org, which is online. And that's another resource I would point to. Its focus, though, is not on the existing private investments. It's really on the public investments and the transitions that are taking place in some communities through those public investments. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing with us. We'll make sure to put them in the show notes so that people can access those. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Bruce, this has been so helpful and it's it's just been great to be able to connect the dots and be able to see a bird's eye view of of what this issue is and get more context for it. I think it's really helpful for those of us just kind of starting to navigate the digital divide space and really start to learn more about what that looks like. So I appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And I hope that it's helpful to some. And, you know, it certainly represents my perspective, but I'm just one tiny piece in a, a vast machine that's constantly moving. And I think a lot of us would like to see positive change and feel like we are a part of it. So I hope it's helpful to those that want to engage and want to inform themselves. Absolutely. On behalf of the entire team here at Transcending Conversation, 
We want to thank Bruce for joining us on today's episode. To learn more about EntryPoint and their efforts with community broadband, please visit our show notes below. Oftentimes, conversations surrounding the digital divide and digital equity can be clouded with a technical language, making it feel like you need a special degree to participate. And we are so grateful for the clarity Bruce has provided on how this issue came to be and what we can do to help minimize its effects in our own communities. We hope you'll join us for the rest of the season as we continue conversations with industry experts and community partners on how they're implementing municipal broadband solutions in cities like Boston and Detroit. See you next week as we continue to transcend the conversation.